Trigger warning, conversations about suicide. In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Inglestad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host, advocate, and let's kick the tires and light the fires, big daddy, Mike Graham. Oh my God, am I Matthew McConaughey? Uh, no, you are Harry Connick Jr. playing Jimmy Wilder. From Co- Independence Day? Co-pilot in Independence Day. Okay, ah, dang it! <laughs> it's like I recognized it. I missed it. I'm because sorry, listeners. I really screwed up this time. It's all right. I tried to set you up because what a great movie and what a what a great holiday we are celebrating a couple hours early. Man, Harry Connick Jr., people loved him for like a few years, and he was great, and I miss him, and I didn't realize well, he's, that. He's still alive. You can, he, yeah. you can still celebrate his career. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can still. Okay, there's YouTube. There is. All right, well, speaking of random actors and how much we appreciate them, Mike, before we get into today's episode, which has nothing to do with Independence Day or Harry Connick Jr., <laughs> yeah. there's been some, some trends in the news recently that I wanted to kind of pick your brain on, and that is the increasing frequency in which actors are talking about the sort of grueling toll that playing uh, especially dramatic roles has on their mental health. So there was one after uh, the Game of Thrones uh, season finale finished. Yeah. You know, uh, several of the actors from that series referenced needing therapy or actually went into rehab in the case of Kit Harrington, who played Jon Snow. Yeah. Went into rehab, um, I believe, for alcohol use. I don't want to make any jumps that you're not positive about. Yeah. But yeah, some of the, uh, several of those actors, you know, referenced the the difficulty that playing those roles had on their mental health, and they had to be in therapy or they had to, you know, use each other for support. And there was another video I saw today actually about this upcoming movie called Midsummer, which might be a movie we have to uh, review for Pop Psych because the two main actors were were talking in really like serious tones about you know, needing to be in therapy and needing to take care of the mental health just to sort of like survive the the shooting of this movie. Oh my gosh. And I just thought that was incredible and sad. I don't doubt it. You know, it's, I think about that for actors, just even in general, I mean, across the board and maybe now they're just able to kind of say I'm going to to therapy for this exact reason. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, think about like Heath Ledger, you know? Absolutely. You always hear those rumors like playing the Joker really is dark, but these people do a lot of, you know, deep diving into their roles and they live it mm-hmm. and they're acting out these characters. And especially for that, you said that's like a scary movie, right? It's supposed to be a pretty, uh, it, it's described as macabre. <laughs> take that for right. what you will. Yeah. <laughs> macabre. Well, you know, surrounding yourself in darkness yeah, for exactly. an extended period of time mm-hmm. is going to take a toll on someone, whether or not it, you're playing or, you know what I mean? Yeah. One day is different than an actor going in and playing a character for a year, you know? 
Yeah, and right. So exactly, you know, you think about the Game of Thrones characters playing those characters for for ten years yeah. of of deaths and violence and and all that kind of stuff. That I, I can imagine how that would have an impact on you. And boobies. Sure, that that could be traumatic too. Yeah, <laughs> for some people. <laughs> so so yeah, it's just interesting, you know, when we think about like the roles that we inhabit, whether in uh, real life as employees or parents or. Uh, our kids or friends and and the roles that and the the toll that those roles can take on us and then the you know i think it's a good thing to see actors and celebrities even you know talking about their mental health in a very open way that you know it's okay and even important for them to take care of their mental health when they deal with these even you know fictional traumatic events i think it's huge for actors to say that because people look up to them and they're yep. public figures and they can say something and it's so much more easily accepted by people mm -hmm. just because of that. They like them. Yep. Uh, but, but going into what you were just saying about when you're into something, even this show, I've talked to you before about how deep diving into mental health every week for a person like me sometimes can like really drag you down. Oh, sure. Yeah. And cause you know, some of it isn't very positive. And so yeah, you're right. It is, it's important to try to take care of yourself. Yeah, so I hope everyone sees the the good example that's being set by some of these actors and is able to, you know, see that that's a normal part of self-care of just, you know, paying attention to those mental health needs and, and making sure you get the support you need. So kudos to those actors for taking care of themselves. And that's that movie was called Midsummer. Midsummer. Uh, yeah, I think it comes out soon. So we'll, we'll okay. maybe cover that later this year. Yeah. All right, Midsummer. Before we get into the episode, just want to make sure everyone knows we do have a mental health support and chat group. Um, if that's something you want to join and chat with all the awesome people that are in there, you can go to Facebook and search Pop Psych 101 Mental Health Chat. And also, we are now accepting patrons of our work. Uh, it takes a lot to keep the show running, and uh, anything is absolutely appreciated. Now you can go to our website, poppsych101.com slash pod support. And there's a button there you can click on and help out the show if you'd like. But that being said, let's get into it. Let's do it. Uh, we met a few days ago. I, I asked you about the church and the birds. Oh, yes. Glad to be of help. You were nice about my child. Yes. And today is another cracker, if I may say so. But I just wondered, between you and me, in a uh, hundred words, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? Well, um, big question, um, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular great painter of all time. The most beloved, his command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. But to my mind, that strange, wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. Sorry, is it too much? No. They are tears of joy. 
Doctor Who, an immortal, regenerating, time-traveling adventurer and his companion, Amy, a regular person, are visiting the Van Gogh exhibit at the world's most famous museum. While admiring one of Van Gogh's paintings, the doctor notices an evil-looking creature hidden in the colors of a church's window. Amy and the doctor jump in the TARDIS, their phone booth time machine, and head back to June of 1890 to find Van Gogh and fight the monster. As they spend time with the legendary painter, they come to realize that not only is his art virtually unknown to anyone in his own time, but he is a man tortured with sadness and visions of which no one else can see. However, those visions turn out to be a weapon when Van Gogh is able to see the monster known as the Crefeus. After defeating the Crefeus, the doctor and Amy bring Van Gogh back to the present to give him a chance to see his exhibit and witness the respect and adoration people would someday have for his work. After returning, Van Gogh feels rejuvenated and Amy is hopeful the adventure will change his path. So Mike, I have to do a trigger warning for fans of Doctor Who. And that is because I, I am not well-versed in the Who universe. The, is it called the Who-niverse? I'm going to really hope. I'm going <laughs> to super hope. Okay, so I also have my own personal trigger warning, but mine's worse. And that's my wife is one of the largest Doctor Who fans on the planet. It's, it's not only something she loves, it's, it's literally part of how people know who she is. Ah. And, I mean, we have TARDIS blankets, and, I mean, it's... It's pretty awesome, um, but I am not a Doctor Who fan, so there's quite a thing at the house about that. Is it true that the fans are called Whovians, or am I making that up too? I'm going to say that's true. Okay, well, I'm sorry, uh, Whovians or who Whoites, or just fans of Doctor Who. Um, I love this episode that we're talking about, but I have seen next to zero other episodes of Doctor Who. <laughs> So I'm sorry if, if I'm referencing anything that feels uh, inaccurate, but I have a lot of thoughts on this, Mike, because I think it's such a fascinating depiction of mental illness and, and of a way that in a very fictionalized universe, one might intervene in an issue of mental illness. Oh, no, absolutely. It's it's kind of stunning when I watch it to think about how they were saying all this stuff in this just like really goofy comedic setting that they put out there. But this episode, by the time you get through it, is incredibly impactful and surprising. So, so people know what we're talking about. It's, it's season five, episode 10. The doctor is Matt Smith. That's right. This, so this is the, uh, okay, this is where we're going to get in trouble. That's all right. This is the 11th doctor. Okay. I'm calling it the 11th doctor. Okay. And I, if I, I get punched in my that. sleep, <laughs> <laughs> if I get punched in my sleep, we know I was wrong. So we have the doctor and, you know, it's. It's this world where he identifies a problem and he can just zip off and do something about it and go there. Yes. Yeah. Anytime, any place. That's right. So, and he uses this power to go back in time and confront this, we call it a beast, a ghost, uh, a creature from another a dimension. Creature, they say creature a lot. Yeah. It's the Crefeus is what they uh, finally identified it as. Yeah. The Crefeus. Um, so yeah, so let's go through this episode because I think there's a lot for us to dig into both in this yeah. fictional world and sort of the implications that it has for us in the real one. Right. 
Well, I, I think, yeah. And I think it's good to kind of set up where they start because they end back there. Yes. And that they start at uh, the art museum. Bill Nye, which, who is fantastic, one of the best actors ever, by the way, is in this episode as a cameo. And he's the art director. I think it's Bill Nye. I think Bill Nye is the is the science guy. I always called him Bill Nye. Just Bill Nye. Uh, I, I'm... I think it's Nike. Uh, Man, like... people are going to just nail us for this episode. We don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so they're they're at the Van Gogh exhibit and just looking around everything. And that's when Doctor Who notices that there is a scary looking creature hidden in one of Van Gogh's paintings and immediately rushes to the director and asks him, uh, when was this painting painted? He says, this was painted in June of 1890. Uh, only a few months before uh, Van Gogh killed himself, but they know they have to travel back to this moment. So it sets us up in a period that's really, really important in Van Gogh's life. Uh, and in real life too, this period of time is when he did almost all of the work we know him for. Um, he's painted like a thousand paintings or something, but yeah. most of his like masterpieces are around this era, mm -hmm. area of time. So, yep. yep. So they travel back to France. In 1890. Yeah, so it's it's super cool. I I <laughs> there's you know, nothing there. What? Well, there's nothing there to there's nothing to analyze there. No, no, it's just this is just what's happening. This is the world that yeah. we're inhabiting. Yeah. Okay. And uh okay, so but what happens? They get there, and I think probably the first thing I see in in this episode that kind of made me write a note down was when they meet Van Gogh, mm -hmm. is that the townspeople um are they immediately set him up as a madman by saying that the townspeople know him that way. They just call him a madman um, and a drunk, an alcoholic, which is, these are true things about Van Gogh. And uh, what I noticed, though, was though Amy has already said in the episode that she's incredibly sad for his story, buys a bottle of wine for him. First thing I noticed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she. it seems like she's trying to sort of intervene as to prevent conflict. Like, she just wants him to not be in trouble anymore almost like he's in yeah. this argument with the with the the waiter and she's just like oh i'll i'll solve the problem let me solve this problem for you let me make this easier for you and that that's a theme that i notice with how they try to help van gogh throughout this episode is that you know the ways that they try to intervene in the problems that he is experiencing in some ways kind of backfire if i'm being honest yeah but yeah so they Attempt to intervene. Van Gogh immediately falls in love with her. Um, yep. Problematic he for some other reasons. <laughs> and yeah, then they kind of gain his favor. They, they gain his trust. Yes. And he brings them back to his home. The Yellow House. Yes. As I think that's what it is, where he stayed around this time. Um, yeah. And this is where we kind of find out that he has a brother who sets him up with doctors. So Van Gogh in real life was in and out of what they called asylums for mental illness. And so he had a, he had real struggles going on, and that's when they're kind of setting this up for us. Um, this is, however, when they do find a dead body in the street, and a crowd gathers around the dead body, and they immediately start throwing stones at the madman. And so that's where my question comes in, and it ties in with the last scene, too, that being... What do you think about that mindset then of, of like crowds of people and their view towards things as opposed to crowds of people and their view towards things now? Yeah, it's interesting. And we've talked about this in past episodes in terms of how some things have changed away from 
you know, institutionalizing people who uh, experienced any amount of uh, non-normal, you know, living, you know, so responding to hallucinations, having a sort of manic or, or depressive episodes. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that, that people would immediately perceive these uh, people as as violent or dangerous and would shun them or would put them in institutions or would, would mistreat them, you know, lock them yeah. up, all the all these sorts of things. So that's, I think, one thing that I immediately noticed. And unfortunately, there are still parts of the world today where this happens, you know, where really? it's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine, but... Yeah, we would think we're pretty progressive, but... You go on YouTube and, and search things for, you know, the reasons that, let's say, uh, police departments are doing, you know, trainings with people who, let's say, have autism or have mental illness issues is because those trainings are in response to uh, police or just people in public responding to people who are, you know, in the midst of a crisis in very uh, inappropriate or even unsafe ways. Hmm. So when people see someone who's experiencing you know, uh, psychosis or experiencing depression, experiencing anxiety, experiencing a panic attack and people kind of being afraid, being unsure. And then what that turns into sometimes is anger. Sometimes is, is, yeah, you know, this, this reaction that we see Van Gogh getting, where basically, oh, this guy's crazy. Like you don't want to deal with him or even things getting blamed on him that have nothing to do with him. Right. Which I think happens yeah, even, even before they go off to the house is that, they sort of hear this commotion in an alleyway, right? Yep. And I believe someone has died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like laying in the street and like the mom's rushing to her, uh, you know, and the, the Crefeus has done this. Yes. Uh, which we don't know yet, but yeah. Yeah, so it's, I think this, with this stigma, both back then and to a certain extent now, unexplained things get blamed on the people who are seen as problematic. You know, it's just crazy to think about because, you know, that word stigma, we say it a lot and or we hear it a lot or we read it a lot. And sometimes when you're on our side of things, because we have so many supporters around us, you know, like the chat group, for example, mm -hmm. uh, the pop Psych chat group, it's everything seems so normal and accepting. And sometimes you can let yourself forget that, 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 you know, there are people that don't see it the same way that we see it. And certainly back then. A thousand times worse, I would imagine, you know, I'm um, just the, the general knowledge even. Oh, sure. But I think if you compare it to something today, it might resemble more of the problem we have with, let's say, the opioid epidemic where, you know, people see people who are uh, addicted to drugs or alcohol. And it's just, well, you know, those people are being irresponsible. They're homeless because anytime they get money, they spend it on drugs or alcohol and they just need to get their their life together. They need to stop using, you know, not taking into account the extreme difficulty that that person might be having, you know, and, and just like in Van Gogh's case, people don't really understand the intensity of the symptoms that he's experiencing. Yeah. And especially at the time, which, which plays into how people treated him later, which uh, we'll get there. But yeah, things go on. They go back to Vincent's house. Uh, and this was funny for me because there was paintings like everywhere. Yeah. Which I'm sure there really were. Oh, but it yeah. was just like comically set up to like, I mean, he was just like had a painting he was carrying around with him that was like half his size, you know? So he's just like covered and buried in paintings. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, he has a couple of uh, moments where you see a bit of, of what he's going through, at least what they're trying to show us. And he says in that scene, he says, um, I've come to accept the only person who's going to like my paintings is me because they both keep telling him 
that they really like his paintings and he just doesn't really believe them. Doesn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. He he hasn't received that kind of validation ever before. Right. So there's a, there's a, a hint of sadness in him and the fact that he's getting no validation from his life's work. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, I was kind of thinking they're really portraying him well, because we know that, that Vincent dealt with these things, but the actor isn't like walking around being all like, Oh, you know, I'm, this is weird. And I messed up. I'm like, I like how they're portraying him. And then it cuts away to the next scene. (laughs) And Vincent is, is our first sign of something going on with Vincent. Um, They're still at the house. And Vincent is yelling things like, I can hear the colors and they're shouting at me. Um, He's screaming, come on, capture the mystery. So it's been hypothesized that one of the possible diagnoses that might be applicable for Van Gogh is manic depression. Really? So for you, when you were watching this, I mean, did any of those symptoms or the way that he was carrying himself, did any of that feel... You know, not that you were thinking about that at the time, but now sort of introducing that to you now, mm-hmm. does that feel like anything that was might be close to home for you? The energy does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sure. The energy does. Um, he says something later. He says, it's okay. Sometimes these monsters torture me for weeks or months. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so that's, yeah. Yeah. That stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I totally understand that. And I understood mm-hmm. that at the time. But now looking back, I see what you're saying with the manic stuff. And then also I read an article outside of this about Starry Night in particular and how he painted it. And, and a lot of people want to say that that was because of like hallucinations or whatever. Right. But there's historians that look back and say he was on this very particular medication at that time mm-hmm. that actually produced vision like uh, that looked the way Starry Night looks. Sure. So a manic taking that kind of stuff out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see it now that you say it. So yeah, you were about to ask about the the doctor and how the doctor and Amy sort of sh- try to start intervening with what they're seeing with Van Gogh. Well, right there in the house when he he says the colors are shouting at him and come on, capture the mystery. I definitely see the manic, yeah. Um, <laughs> doctor Who's weirded out. And it seems like, you know, I'm not even overanalyzing that because Doctor Who is an alien Yep. Or not to himself, but he's an immortal being who travels the universe in a phone booth. Mm -hmm. And this is weirding him out. Right. So I'm like, come on, Doctor Who. Yeah, we're not actually seeing a lot of empathy from him. No. Especially under the circumstances. No, not not at all. And it's so I was a little disappointed in the way the doctor was reacting there and thought maybe he'll catch on. Yeah, because taken at face value, (laughs) just living in the universe that this show is happening in, you're deciding to go back in time to meet and, and help Van Gogh with this creature. You don't know what you're going to deal with. You know that he's mentally ill to a certain degree, because obviously he commits suicide. That is fact. And yet when you get there and you start to see the reality of this mental illness, Amy obviously showed a lot of empathy. I think we can state that. Yeah. But the doctor did kind of have this alien like coldness of just like, wow, I don't, I don't know what this is all about. Yeah. Weird looks. Yeah. And he was just kind of like focused on the mission, basically. Right. You know, I'm out of here. I'm going to go find this creature. I'm going to go, you know, try to fight this thing off. Right. And he was kind of acting that way through this point. But right after that, the monsters attacked them, right? Yes. Yeah. But you come to find out that only Vincent can see them. Mm -hmm. And um, which is hilarious because he's fighting them. 
but like air fighting them because no, didn't... but you can't. You actually, you don't actually show the monster. Yeah, right. Well, Doctor Doo doesn't have have the budget to right. put the monster in every scene. Yeah, yeah. So they he's fighting them. It's hilarious. But uh, I thought I was going to ask you about what you thought. Maybe the writers thought about doing this thing where only Vincent could see him. Well, yeah, I actually. I almost didn't want them to show it with the crappy CGI because, you know, Mike, before on our show, we've talked about how hallucinations are depicted, you know, almost for like plot or entertainment value in uh, A Beautiful Mind, right? Right. And, you know, there's certain scenes in A Beautiful Mind where you just see him sort of interact with nothing because no one else can see what he's interacting with. But this, I felt like this was a almost like a, a, a much more empathetic and probably accurate representation of what someone who's experiencing hallucinations might actually look like to people who can't see what's what he is experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. That it would be scary. It would be confusing. But then you realize that, oh, this monster actually did like knock Doctor Who off his feet. So something is real here. Yeah. But at that time when I was watching it, I thought I took myself purposely like out of the Doctor Who mm -hmm. universe part. And, yeah, sure. And thought what if, you know? What if I'm just watching a Vincent's life, mm -hmm. and the they're a part of the hallucination? You know what I mean from the future and all this stuff. And, and that's when you go when you said manic depressive. I'm like, I wouldn't have guessed that one because it mm. seems like they're trying to show us that he's like a hallucinating guy, right? And I guess that can happen, but well, actually, so and that so the the reason that I don't jump to any sort of conclusions about like psychosis or schizophrenia is because what you mentioned that that there is some awareness that medications that he was taking or even there were some like remedies that that people would take at the time one of which was foxglove oh yeah which is basically has a natural uh toxicity that can lead to some really problematic symptoms including hallucinations so so i don't put his hallucinations on his mental health as much as other things that were going on including you know he did have an alcohol problem if you're going through any kind of alcohol withdrawal or even if you're just drinking a lot of different things of that era, you know, there are other things that could lead to hallucinations as well. Okay. So then though, now that being said, what happens in the next scene just played right along with where I had put my mindset. Mm -hmm. They know now that they can't see the monster. Vincent defeats the monster for the evening. And Dr. Who says, I got to figure out, you know, like, we got to see this thing and has like a device inside the TARDIS now this device can see it. And so I thought it would be cool to kind of ask you as a therapist. Mm -hmm. So he has this device and when he turns it on, he can see what Vincent is experiencing when he sees these monsters. Yes. So as a therapist, how, what would it be like for you if you were able to get a device and like be with somebody and at their level when you're working with them? Like, how yeah. useful would that be? Yeah, I mean, it would be incredible, you know, the ability to, if they are actively hallucinating something, and if I could join them in that experience in a, presumably in a safe way, it'd be incredibly valuable because a therapist's job on its face is to not judge, um, not question, at least not at the outset, that if a person says they are seeing a, a creature in the room or in the in the yard, that you're not... the, the responsibility in that moment is to say, no, you're not. So, so I wouldn't, uh, now I could say, you know, I understand that you're telling me you're seeing a creature. I can't see a creature. So, and to a certain degree, the doctor does that 
But then once he kind of gets knocked off his feet, he's like, okay, there is something here. Yeah. But yeah, so it's it's it was really cool to see that be validated. Because I think there was that scene sort of a beat later where Van Gogh actually says, you can see him too. Yes, he does. Yeah. So yeah. it was like he felt like they were there with him, you know? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm I'm just having this experience of this creature. And now we can talk solutions. We can actually deal with it. Yeah. That's also the scene, though, Van Gogh's having like a, a kind of a breakdown. And that is mm-hmm. like the following scene. He's found these two people, right, in his life that are accepting him or or at least validating what he's going through. And Van Gogh in real life was known as a lonely person. Yep. Isolated. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote about his loneliness. He said to them, when you leave and they always leave, I will be left once more with an empty heart and no hope. But that is when Doctor Who stepped in and says, there is hope. But, but so right before this, the doctor makes some acknowledgement that, you know, we'll, we'll sort of take care of this mission and then we'll be out of here. We'll be out of your hair. You can kind of just go back to living your normal life. Right. Mm-hmm. And Vincent responds to that with, with this, with this sort of breakdown. Right. And this is in the moment when I start to started to get really concerned with how Doctor Who and Amy were were attempting to intervene with this man. Now, obviously, they are concerned about this creature. Totally valid. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're also jumping into a life of someone who is dealing with some mental illness. And they recognize that he is uh, uh, fragile and, and, you know, experiencing lots of different kinds of symptoms for different reasons. And for them to jump into this man's life to the extent that they did, and then, you know, kind of not leave any, and, and we'll get to this a little bit later when we kind of see what happens after they do leave, but there's this, this feeling that, oh, all we have to do is, is remove this demon and then everything will be fine. Yeah. For you, for this guy. And then we can leave and it, it'll be yeah. all better. And, yeah. and right. And then, you know. And this is when we get the the sort of background of what often the problem is with mental health and mental illness is that even after the depression uh, is treated or the anxiety is treated or the PTSD is treated, there's still a recovery that needs to happen. There's a rebuilding of of social life. There's a rebuilding of family relationships. There's a rebuilding of of hobby interests. And if that part isn't also supported. It's so easy for the the depression symptoms and the anxiety symptoms to come back because if, you know, so it's like if uh, Doctor Who was me and I rushed in <laughs> and I, I gave you a pill that made you say, okay, now that your hallucinations are gone, uh, everything's good now, right? Okay, I'm going back to the future. Hope everything works out. Like, I, that'd be hugely irresponsible. Yeah, definitely. And that's essentially what Doctor that, Who and Amy they're do. Doing because they're using this... And you come to realize that, that they're using this monster, this, this Crefeus, as a basically a metaphor for his depression, right? Sure. Yeah, sure. So, so Vincent says sort of in this response that, you know, even if this mission is accomplished, right, even if they defeat the monster, the creature or whatever, that they will leave and, and they always leave. So even if he's, quote unquote, not depressed anymore or not hallucinating anymore, He's still alone. Yeah. And I think that's that's a problem. And now the doctor tries to do this sort of trite, uh, there is hope, things are going to get better thing. But 
Vincent has no evidence or reason to believe that. And, and no. telling him that is just kind of bordering on invalidation. So right. and, and that he was has my no, problem with this. Yeah, He has no experience before to say that's going to you know right. hold true. Like it's easy for the doctor to say there's hope. He's the universal being or whatever. But, <laughs> God, the but it, for, for Van Gogh, it's like, okay, you, you're telling me there's hope, but I have no reason to believe that. That just makes me think like, what do you think about loneliness? And what that does to people, uh, what what can that cause to people? I mean, people that aren't susceptible to mental health problems or, gen, you know, genetics or, or whatever it may be, maybe someone's living a normal, happy life and then they become tragically lonely. What can loneliness do to a person? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what the the idea that I'm talking about here, and that's even if the mental health symptoms are addressed, mental illness causes all of these problems outside of the, the, the specific experience of the mental illness. So whether it be isolation or loss of job or loss of uh, friends and family, you know, loss of interest in hobbies, that even if the symptoms are gone, it doesn't, it's not just a, a flip switch to get all those things back. Right. So there is still this loneliness and this isolation that, now that's where the work needs to be, this reintegration into the community. And I think, and you know, we're jumping ahead into the episode a little bit, but I wish that part of the resolution that the doctor and, and Amy were trying to accomplish was, was for Vincent to be reintegrated into the community in a way that helps them see he's not mad. Yeah, especially because with the knowledge that they have. Absolutely. There had to, there, there had to have been a way. I think... You know, and we're going to talk about the suicide, but but I think that that would have been a more empathetic opportunity to to acknowledge the connection that Vincent was missing. Yeah. Okay, so they move on. Obviously, we have this monster we have to defeat. So that's right. Uh, most of the episode is is about getting to the monster, and so know, we're I'm, we're pulling all these little lines out to. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's there. It really is. And and Van Gogh is a you know he's a tragic uh, character of history, but. They go to the church where Van Gogh has to paint the church so that they can see where the Corpheus is going to be, so they can find it and kill it. They see it, and Doctor Who goes in, and then uh, Amy and Van Gogh follow him in, even though Amy said they would not follow him in. But yeah, they go in, and Van Gogh ends up killing the Corpheus. Yep. And while the Corpheus is dying, Doctor Who puts his hand on the animal, the monster, the beast, and and hears it talking and comes to realize that the Corpheus is blind and afraid and has been attacking people, not because it's been attacking people. Out of fear, yeah. But because it's blind and afraid. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I wanted to stop here because for me, that really stood out as a, as a metaphor for what they were trying to show as, as like Van Gogh's depression. Sure. That it, you know, that it's not his fault that the monster is there. The monster's blind, right? And is attacking him not because of who he is, but there's no reason behind it. Right. And so as the creature's dying, there's comfort in the fact that you know that Van Gogh didn't do anything to bring this out, but there's sadness to know that it was there at all. And that the experience happened at all. So, I, I mean, I thought that was, for me, it was kind of beautiful. I just thought it was, for me, it was like kind of spot on how you kind of want to think about it for yourself. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think that idea that it's not the person's fault is obviously incredibly valuable and, and would offer an opportunity for the community to empathize with that person's experience. But also, if you take that step back and see, oh, that other person died as a result of the Grafeus, like, is that also sort of the implication of another person lost to mental illness, right? Yeah. You know, but that when we see that person lost, we don't uh, empathize and question what happened to that person. We look for someone else to blame. Yeah. You know, and, and this, I think, does happen in today's world, that if uh, someone commits suicide, it's, you know, what could we have done? What, you know, whose fault is this? Yeah. Yeah. You want to know why so badly. Yeah, of course. We want to understand. And a lot of times it, it can't be fully understand. You know, as, as Vincent says. I mean, I, he, he I just, can understand. Well, right. But, but as Vincent tries to tell them, like, he wants people to see what he sees. He wants people to feel what he feels. Yeah. Um, whether that's through the paintings that he creates or, you know, just in, in living his life. Right. It, it's just like a plea for, can you, I wish people knew how I felt. Yeah. So, and actually I have a quote by Van Gogh. I thought it sort of connects to this. In 1890, he is uh, quoted as saying, I feel the desire to renew myself and to try to apologize for the fact that my pictures are, after all, almost a cry of anguish. Although in the rustic sunflower, they may symbolize gratitude. So we can tell that he's also grappling with what people, I should say, how people perceive him. Yeah. And how he's trying to communicate to that to people in a way that they can appreciate and understand and, and even enjoy. Yeah. And you just go... Man, what if he was born in a different time, like now, you know, with more support? Yeah, you yeah, know, absolutely. and that's a huge question. That that that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this goes on. the 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 monster has been defeated. They go back, and, and just like you said, Ryan, they're see you later. But right before they leave, the doctor has an idea. To me, I have huge opinions about what happens next. Yep, and they go both ways. But what he does is he he takes Van Gogh forward in time from 1890 to 2010 and takes him to the museum with the Van Gogh exhibition to show him what the world really thinks of him after he passes. And he sees the adoration and he sees the respect that he gained, but only after death, right? Yep. And he's flooded with tears of joy and there's a a pretty cheesy pop song on in the background. It's like, it's got three it's chords. A, it's, a, it's a beautiful scene. It is a beautiful scene. It really is. I'm making fun of it, but it really is. It's a, mm-hmm. it'll move you. It'll choke you up if you're mm-hmm. watching it. And I guess I, I wanted to ask you what you thought of, well, I guess the, the, the first thing would be they imply a lot in this episode and it's implied in general knowledge, public knowledge, pop culture knowledge that Van Gogh got his, painting chops from his mental illness. Mm. I wondered how you think about that kind of stuff. I, I don't like that interpretation, you know, attributing 
Well, okay, so it's tough, right? Because I, I don't want to take away the the gifts that our experience can offer us. That being said, I don't also don't want to imply that he had to experience suffering to create. Right. So that's that's the sort of dilemma for me as a therapist is that I don't want to imply that, you know, suffering is required, you know, for people to create great work or great art. I don't think suffering is required. No, no, not at all. Uh, it's like, would he have been a creative person without? The answer is yes, because guess what? Van Gogh was creating before he was really having any major issues. Right. Uh, his mental stuff didn't start till he later in life, right. um, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, he was already into art and everything. He had, he had the gift, yes. Right. So... I, I also agree that there are instances where maybe it can help inspire. Right. And that's sort of what I was trying to say with sort of the the benefits that experience can offer us, that when we do experience some of the the depths of depression or the intensity of anxiety, that that experience can be, you know, a window into a unique view on life yeah. and that we can draw upon those experiences for for art or for expression. Yes. But that doesn't mean that those experiences are necessary. Correct. Or required by any means. Yeah. Yeah. So so they're in the museum and Doctor Who takes him there, I think for his own reasons. Because Doctor, Doctor Who kind of always knows what's, what's going on. You know what I mean? He's always a step ahead. So he knows what he's doing. But Amy, I think, believes that bringing Van Gogh to the museum to see how much people love what he's done because he's like undoubtedly one of the most popular painters in history of all time, right? Mm-hmm. She believes that finding that out is going to stop him from committing suicide. So my question here for you was how dangerous or not dangerous, what do you think of what the doctor did here with Van Gogh or Van Gogh? Yeah, so it's interesting. So... You know, Van Gogh breaks down into tears when he hears um, Bill Nye. And, and as we were talking, it is Bill Nye. So you can cut that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not um, cutting it. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So uh, Bill Nye, the museum guy, is is talking about how he thinks Van Gogh is one of the best painters of all time. And Van Gogh starts to cry and starts to sort of experience the the weight of the the appreciation that his work uh has from the public and he does start to cry starts to break down and you see the doctor sort of realize the emotional toll that this is taking on him now van Gogh sort of brushes it off as it's being tears of joy it's more than that i was a little skeptical of that i think there was a little bit more emotional stuff going on there but but yeah it's almost like the doctor takes pleasure in like creating these little scenarios like isn't it wouldn't it be cool if we brought van gogh to the present to see how much everyone loves him yeah like doctor who is the screenwriter you know what i mean yeah 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 and and i think you're right that amy you know whether she's being naive or not does have this sort of uh, hope that this will have a bit larger impact on him but for me watching that scene and then finding out later that van gogh still commits suicide to me, it felt like, you know, when I've worked with people who are experiencing suicide ideation, that friends and family, the way that they intervene is by trying to tell them 
you know, uh, how much people love them and how much, you know, how much they'll be missed and how important they are to people. Yeah. And that's, that's not to say that these are not true or good things, but for someone who's experiencing suicidal ideation, those facts, even if they are true, are really invalidating because that's not how they feel in that moment. So hearing that stuff only makes them feel like, well, even if that's true, why do I hate so much? Why do I hate myself so much? Why do I still want to die even if that stuff's true? And it's a real struggle to hear those things. It's a real struggle to hear that people love you and also feel like you want to end your life. I mean, those things are completely incompatible and it creates real tension for people. So as as beautiful as a scene as this was and as sort of unique as a opportunity, I'm sure the doctor thought this was, he's creating this dichotomy for for Vincent where he's going back. Yeah, you have to remember, yeah, he's going back. And when he goes back, nobody cares about his work. Nobody's going with him. And who's who's going to believe him? Yeah, yeah. What, what's, and he they, gonna, what, what's he going to go tell people in the town that like, well, you know, a couple thousand years from now, people are really going to appreciate this work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like 120 years, but. Well, you're right, a couple <laughs> hundred years from now, whatever. Um. I'm sure we'll still appreciate it in a thousand years as well. Yeah. Uh, but the the point being that they kind of just leave him out to dry and the hope that being like, well, um, our work here is done. We, we, we hope that this experience changed things for him. And, and even he says this changes everything. And I think that that sort of felt like a pink cloud effect that sometimes people have when they have a, um, I think know, it example, does change everything still, whether or not it has an effect on the ultimate outcome. I do think mm-hmm. it does change everything because I guess that's what I was wanting to say about this here. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Was uh, just like you said about when he was crying and he said tears of joy that he was masking that. And, and, and I agreed because I cried when I watched this scene and they were tears of sadness for Van Gogh mm-hmm. because I could only imagine a creative person never being validated and, and, and this being a real thing that happened to them, this would be, this would be terrible. This would be terrible. Yeah. yeah. To know that your contemporaries, you could never interact with the people that would validate you in real time. I mean, it'd be great to know that people loved what you did, but to know that it only would happen at, when you couldn't experience that, because we have yeah. to admit creative people long for approval. Yeah, for acceptance, for validation. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Ryan, you're a creative guy and I'm a creative guy. And it's all I've done my whole life is create. Um, so I don't know. You just kind of relate with the fact that you make these things and, you know, no one really cares. And that's fine. But, man, I don't think I'd want to hear about someone thinking that my stuff was amazing in 100 years, you know? Yeah, because even if that felt good in the moment... You know, when he goes back to the present, he's still alone. He's he's still uh, looked at as being crazy. Yeah. You know, he's still uh, unappreciated, un- unseen in a lot of cases. Yeah. So it, it is sad because you, you you picture him getting back from this experience with, do- with the doctor and with Amy. And, you know, maybe like a couple days or weeks or months pass by. And it's just like everything kind of ends up being the same. He still feels bad enough, whether he's having hallucinations or not, who can say in this universe. But the reality is, is that the symptoms and the the situation that he's in are still bad enough that he makes this choice. That's right. 
and it's a sad thing, but um, that that's what happens. Um, they drop him back off, and then um, credits roll. So uh, we do have we're gonna get into stuff a little bit bigger here, but we do need to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So, Mike, I thought in the second half here we could talk a little bit about the sort of bigger picture of you know, knowing someone who commits suicide, coping with uh, the loss of a friend or family member to suicide. It's, you know, the the impact that this has, obviously, on the characters in Doctor Who, both Doctor Who and Amy. There's this sort of scene that they follow them afterwards when they sort of realize that this still happened. Yeah. When they, when they drop Van Gogh. Well, actually, first we have to acknowledge, I think my wife's going to force me to acknowledge this, Okay. And it's about our show mm-hmm. that uh, we are aware that this isn't the second half and it's more like the fourth quarter. Uh, totally aware fair. Of that. <laughs> um, we just call it the second half because it's after the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they, they, they get him up to the museum and then they, they drop him off and he goes about his way. Yeah. They come back forward in time. Amy rushes back into the museum in hopes to, somehow find more paintings were made and there were not. Nope. Um, she hoped that their trip had stopped his suicide somehow. Van, Van Gogh at the age of 37 shot himself in the chest and died two days later due to, I mean, I would assume mental health reasons. And she's kind of torn up about the fact that she had no, she feels like she had no effect on him. And I thought it was really important to talk about and two people that have had a suicide to them about the effect that you do have on them, whether or not they commit suicide. And then also the big question I've always had is for some people that are tortured Mm -hmm. enough that they fall through, is there ever an instance where we could have stopped it? Or it would have just, there was nothing we could have done or said. And I was wondering what you thought. So, yeah. So, you know, in the immediate sense, we have Amy, right, who much more than the doctor who has this like weird, cold, aloof thing going on (laughs) that Amy has this sort of emotional, uh, the emotional impact, emotional weight of realizing that a person that, let's be honest, Van Gogh fell in love with her pretty quickly. Yeah. Wanted Wanted to get married, wanted to have kids. Amy kind of kept her boundaries intact knowing that that would never work but still i think liked him took it took a liking to him felt for him so to know that this person that she felt for still uh made this choice we could uh understand how she might wonder if there was not something else that she could have done yeah and i think you know to answer your question you know i would never tell a survivor and in this case, I'm referring to survivors as people who, who are the survivors of someone else um, yeah. committing suicide. The people surviving it, yeah. Yes. I would never uh, validate or or agree with anyone's self-perception that there was more that they could have done. We always want to help someone get to the point of what happened, happened. And and going back to that place is is really difficult. And, you know, it comes with a lot of emotions, shock and denial and guilt and shame and anger and confusion and anxiety. And, and, and those emotions are normal and they have to be normal. But if we start to cast blame either on ourselves or others, 
that is not going to lead anywhere positive. Yeah. I mean, for yourself, no, no way. Right. So, so, you know, you asked the question, is there any instance in which it's sort of, uh, is this question, is it okay to still accept responsibility or to wonder if... No, the, the question... Uh, no, and, and you're thinking about the question where I said, is there ever an instance where there wasn't anything we could have done? Someone was going to make that choice because of the torture they go through. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter what you said or what you did or what program you put them in or what pills you had them on or what diet you had them on that this person was going to fall through with this. Cause that, that's what I took at, out of this at mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. That no matter what happened or what intervened in Van Gogh's life, this was going to happen. He was going to go through with this act. So that's, that's the theme I took away. And I'm wondering, even if we want to tell ourselves that there's always an, an intervention to where we can always stop this. Do you, do you think if we have to be totally realistic with ourselves that, there's going to be cases where there's just no way to stop that. And, and I think that's a peaceful thing to think about in a way for a survivor. Sure. Because you did everything you could and it still happened. Mm-hmm. To me, what that means is that person was hurting so bad that, it, that, that you did an amazing job. And I'm sure they knew that. But right. they, the thing they had to get away from wasn't you. Right. Or the people around. It was, it was what was happening inside. And I'm wondering if that's just ever unavoidable. So I, I don't like to speak in absolutes. I don't think okay. anything is unavoidable and I don't think anything is, is guaranteed and I don't think anything is, is completely preventable. Like all, you know, there are shades of gray in everything. There's a middle ground in everything. And so the idea that nothing, quote unquote, nothing could have been done with Van Gogh. I mean, I, I said earlier in the episode that I felt like if they were trying to prevent Van Gogh's suicide, there was probably more they could have done to do that. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to the doctor's point, that's not necessarily what their mission was. Right, I, you're right, yeah. So in that context, you know, they did not go back in time to give Van Gogh uh, a mental health intervention, even realistically. Yeah. Now we can talk about how the, you know, the creature might have represented his mental health issues or his hallucinations that if by defeating the creature would that free him from it, you know, but as I said before, I don't think that that's really enough. So, you know, I guess for me, I would never want a survivor to think that there was more they could have done. So to that end, the focus is always on the survivor's emotional experience. It's not questioning past action or inaction. And in fact, when that stuff has come up with, you know, patients I've worked with who have, you know, that sort of shame and, and grief and, and, um, and guilt, you know, the question that I ask is, is because these emotions have uses. You know, you think about shame and uh, you think about guilt and shame, excuse me. You know, and I'll just ask you, Mike, we'll have a conversation. Yeah. W- what is the purpose of guilt? What does guilt help us do? Uh, well, make a different decision the right. next so, time around. So, right. So it helps you make up for something that you feel like you've done wrong, right. essentially. Right. So, um, and the, the sort of classic example of like spilled milk. So I spilled milk at my neighbor's house. I feel guilty about it. My guilt prods me to do something different, um, either the next time or to amend the mistake I feel like I've made. So I feel guilty. Thus I clean up the mess. Yes. I feel guilty, thus I apologize. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Now, when shame starts to come in, it's like, oh, man, I can't go back to that neighbor's house. Like, I spilled the milk at their house. Like, I'm a terrible neighbor. Or they wouldn't even want me to have me over again. Um, I, I can't even drink anything around them. Like, I'm, I'm a terrible yeah. person. I can't. So the, the guilt is and the shame are only useful if it helps change a behavior, if it helps change an interaction in a positive way. If all it does is prevent opportunities from making amends, then you get stuck in this emotion. And that's what survivors, I think, struggle with, is that when they think about things they should have done differently, they're preventing themselves from opportunities to resolve the emotion. So if if they feel guilty over things that they didn't do for the person who committed suicide, that guilt needs to spur them on to action to the things they can do in the present. So that's why I think it's awesome when people, you know, set up foundations in that loved one's name or, um, you know, make an effort to join NAMI, the National Association of Mental Illness, to to do actions that help them feel like they're honoring that person or doing something for them, even if, you know, if they've passed on. I think those actions are the things that create healing and that create positive momentum. So I I guess I also wanted to speak to... um, I guess I wanted to give some insider knowledge into into suicidality. Su- how do you say that word? Yeah, sure. Suicidality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to give. <laughs> sorry. It's okay. Uh, I just wanted to give some insight into that mm-hmm. um, because you know we talked about even earlier that people have questions about that and they wonder why. And there's people out there with those answers who do understand when someone kills themselves, right? Yep. Um, and those would be people like me, and people that and there's. There's a whole lot of me out there, right? Um, and and just to maybe give some insight into that feeling, um, I guess I I always just want. Imagine you have a migraine, and it never goes away, right? Sure. Now, or you think it's never going to go away, and it keeps happening, and it keeps happening. We've heard of people that you know, take drastic measures when they have chronic back pain. Uh, uh, when they get dry sockets after laser surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, these are real things that have happened over physical pains. It's the same thing, right? It's a pain in your mental, in your brain, um, and it's anguish, and it's, it's a torture. And I suppose that people like me are lucky to have the ones that do intervene and stay and get us in the programs and get us on medicines if that's what we need and do the things that we need to help us get those episodes over with. Because if the torture were to extend itself, um, I've told you before, Ryan, I get um, obsessive suicidal thoughts. And if that wasn't intervened with, who knows, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a torture. It is what it is. And so when I hear that someone lost the fight, you know, well, we, we, we don't, we don't like to use yeah. that. that yeah, phrase. I know. I don't even know how to say that. Uh, when I hear that someone, you know, ended it. Sure. Made that decision. Yeah. That's yeah. They yeah. made that decision. Then I, I know that they were, they were tortured and mm-hmm. it was to them. That was, they just, they couldn't, do it another second. Mm-hmm. I know that's hard to wrap uh, your mind around, but it's just, I mean, it's just as simple as that. It's just too painful. And it doesn't have to do with anybody else. It's just, yeah, 
it's just pain that, that, that they need to go away and they need it to go away right now. So I, I always understand it and it's always terrible and horrible. And, and I wish that they hadn't made that choice. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to sort of speak to the phrase that you used, I think, you know, lose the fight. I think people sort of have this, this sense that if I'm having these thoughts and they feel crazy and they feel like it's a sign of weakness, like, why can't I just stop thinking this way? that that sort of exacerbates the problem mm-hmm. that, you know, it becomes then something that's even more difficult to, to not think about and not focus on. And that's why I think when we can offer validation to someone like Van Gogh or someone like you, as, as I'm sure you've experienced, that it's just, okay, you're having these thoughts. It's okay. It's okay. You're having these thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, let's deal with how you're feeling. Let's, you know, talk about things that would help you feel better or just help you, you know, process that you're having these feelings in the first place. Because when we deal with the reality and we don't run from it, we don't, you know, try to pretend it's not happening. We don't, we don't distract from it just to, to not think about it for a second. Then it resolves more naturally. And that's what I think, you know, someone like Van Gogh needed where it was like, hey, everyone thinks you're crazy, but you're not. You, you really saw this thing. And yes, now we have defeated the creature, but now on the other side of this experience is you reconnecting with uh, your your passions and and people in your life. Right. Yeah. And all of that. Because he had at that point, um, like one of his friends was, uh, he got into a fight with like a razor blade, and he that's when he cut his own ear. But so he didn't have that friend anymore. And then he lived away. His brother lived in another country, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. As well as his sister. So he was like on his own without his family nearby is hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's Dr. Who's fault. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I'm know, kidding. I'm no, kidding. I know. I know. I don't want to say that. Cause I think, yeah. Um, you know, and I think, and this, it's a naivety that when, when someone's experiencing suicide, if we just sort of, if we just think that, well, just telling them how much they're loved, just telling them, showing them how much they're appreciated is, is enough, is going to change things. And the reality is, is that if anything, that leaves them with bigger questions, right? That if this is true, if I am loved and if I am appreciated, how come I feel so bad? Why am I this way? And that, that, right. That question's not answered. And that's the question that needs to be answered in therapy or in a support group or with yes. a psychiatrist or with family support. And I think that is the support that someone like Van Gogh uh, needed or that you are talking about that you've gotten, which I think really makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it gets cyclical, you know, it gets, uh, For sure. cause you said people telling you uh, how much you're loved and, and all that kind of stuff, but then you go into, well, why am I this way? And it just becomes this, this ever turning thing. And as soon as you get to, why am I this way? Then guilt and shame and all sorts of, you know, these emotions just start piling up and then it starts back over and people come to reassure. And then you say, yeah, but why am I this way? And then it starts over. Yeah. The reassurance is really not what's needed. Yeah. Although it's, you're not doing anything in my mind wrong. Like, well, I guess we would have to talk. Right. So (laughs) the, the intention is good, which is great. You're trying to help them feel loved, but in doing so can create this sort of unintentional evaluation where, what am I supposed to do with this feeling then? Because if you love me, you know, do you want to hear how, how intense these thoughts have been? Like, is that, is that okay for me to talk about? Like there's all yeah. these, these incongruous things that are created. I think when we try to intervene that way. Before we end it here, I do, 
one thing you can do for someone who um, gets suicidal or or thinks about that kind of stuff in a realistic way is um, support them. And I don't mean that in a general term. I mean, like, um, let them do what they need to do. For example, I need to go and be alone and work it out on my own. I don't want to see people. Um, I need to go through my own steps and these different things. And, and the support there is that I'm allowed to do that without guilt. I'm allowed to do those things freely as if um, they were totally normal. <laughs> right. And, and for me, that's super helpful. So that would be, that would be a good thing. Yeah. And to create that, that space for that, uh, for you or for whoever that person might be, that if they do want to talk about it, that whatever those thoughts or feelings are, are just going to be normal and accepted and it's okay. You want to talk about whatever the thoughts or feelings are. We want to know, we want to hear it. We're here for it and we will not be afraid. We will not be mad. We will not be disappointed in you. Um, we just want you to feel like yeah. you'll be accepted. That, that That's a big deal. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because that has happened and like with yeah. my wife. And yeah. when I tell her um, and I get and she has that empathy for me mm -hmm. and uh, that that is validating. When I talk to people who have suicidal ideations, I, I do think there is so much um, shame in it. Like, why, why, why am I thinking this way? And the reality is, and I always tell people who are experiencing these thoughts that just like anything else, I use this word all the time, but there's a spectrum of these types of thoughts. You know, Mike, last week we talked about self-harm and that there's the lightest version of self-harm is like biting your nails, which is a, hob a habit that millions of people have, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And when you're aware of what the habit is, then you can respond to it in a, in a healthy way. I, I won't, it's just, I don't know, I can't speak to how common it is, but I've talked to enough people about this stuff that I can tell you that, you know, things like driving down the highway and just sort of like passively being wondering like, oh, I wonder what happened if I drove into oncoming traffic. That, that is a thought that people have. That doesn't mean that they're suicidal. It doesn't mean that they want to die. But it's a thought that our brain created unintentionally. Yeah. It, you know, and, and it's important to know that those thoughts happen not because you want to die or because anything's wrong with you, but just that our brains are crazy, mysterious things. They're just the weirdest, man. <laughs> and, and it's okay for us to think that way sometimes as long as we, uh, you know, don't let those thoughts turn into worse things, right? Yeah. If I can have a thought like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen if I turn into oncoming traffic. And then my second thought is, huh, that's weird. I wonder why I just had that thought. Anyway, right. on to work, you know, and then it sort of <laughs> naturally resolves. That's huge because I can now I can have weird thoughts and not pay them any more attention than, than they are asking for. Yeah. So brains are weird. Brains are weird. Uh, okay, okay. We're going to end it there, and we have to get into our ratings. And if you haven't listened to the show before, every week Ryan and I rate on the scale of 1 to 5. Ryan does uh, 1 to 5, usually for accuracy, and I do 1 to 5 on the critic scale. Ryan, what are you rating this week? So it's Doctor Who. Um, it's a, a fictional universe, obviously. So I, I don't want my rating to be a... Uh, I, again, I'm rating for how accurate this is in terms of what this would look like in the real world. Yeah. So, um, out of five sunflowers, oh, it's a one point five. I mean, oh. no one, but that just means that <laughs> that we can't go back in time, 
And that means that that creature's not real. <laughs> and whatever <laughs> Van Gogh was hallucinating probably wasn't an inter interdimensional creature. But that metaphor can be useful. So, so take all of this with a grain of salt and pay attention more to the large picture conversation that we were having today and less so on the uh, invisible creatures that can only be seen through magical devices that Doctor Who happened to have inside of his magical police box. Oh, that was a good sentence. Okay, thank I you. I liked it. All right, all right. So I'm going to do mine. Uh, I'm going to do one to five um, companions. I'm going to use companion. So, because uh, that was like the first thing I learned about Doctor Who that Brie told me. I was like, what mm -hmm. is this person with this guy? She's like, it's this companion. And I'm like, okay. But anyway. Uh, Traveling so buddy. <laughs> I have already acknowledged I'm not a big Doctor Who fan. But this is, to me, I've seen a few episodes and I've read online about it too. It's probably the best episode of Doctor Who. And it's a great episode. However, the great parts were there, but then there was also Doctor Who was still there and uh, the CGI was still there. And it wasn't that then, bad. <laughs> uh, it just reminds me of like a grown up Power Rangers. Okay, that's fair. I'm going to give this a. Oh my God, this is hard because. I'm going to give it a 2.5. I almost liked it. Right down the middle. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but I'm going to pull the scene out when they went to the museum, just that scene, mm -hmm. and give that a five. Great. For okay. Just there you emotional. Go. So there you go. All right. Okay. Okay, guys. We got to get out of here for the day. Make sure you stick around to hear Ryan's wise closing thoughts. But first, we have to thank Kevin McLeod for the music we use on the show. If you like royalty free music, please go to incompetech.com to find Kevin's music. And now for some closing thoughts on the Doctor Who episode, Vincent and the Doctor. First of all, when trying to help someone who is experiencing any sort of mental illness symptom, but especially hallucinations, it's crucial to validate them to whatever extent that you can. Even if you can't, as Van Gogh asks, see what he sees, Accepting that they see it goes a long way towards them feeling comfortable coping with their reality. As a person experiencing symptoms like Van Gogh does, it's incredibly important to recognize that even if the most painful symptoms are dealt with, reconnecting with family, friends, and the community is a vital step to prevent relapse and a return of symptoms. For us, this might look like joining a support group or becoming an advocate to help other people dealing with mental health issues. Finally, we see Amy and the Doctor cope with the recognition that despite all of their work, Van Gogh ultimately follows through on his decision to end his life. It's so important for survivors of those who commit suicide to seek out their own support. It can be easy to minimize your experience in comparison to the person you lost, but seeking out your own support can go a long way towards healing and successful recovery. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at poppsych 101 we also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Poppsych101 is on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Poppsych 101.